Welcome to Drunk Guys Book Club, where books aren't just for school, book clubs aren't just for women, and beer makes everything better. I'm Mike. I'm Nate. And we're the Drunk Guys. This week we are discussing Margaret Atwood's 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Start with a drink here. Uh, I'll start with yours, Nate. Let's do a little... Sure. Well, since since a lot of this book is a lot about religion, definitely about uh, Christianity, I found a cider called Original Sin, which, you know, is definitely a good name for an apple cider, which um, sounds delicious. I'll try it right now. Yeah. 6% alcohol, premium hard cider. Premium. There you go. That's sinful. That's pretty good. <laughs> a little tart, dry, nice autumnal kind of beverage for this hot, you know, fairly warm July day. <laughs> Nice. We'll see we went for a religious theme with our beverages today. <laughs> Definitely a religious theme. All right. All right. So, um, Handmaid's Tale. It, this is a book in a dystopian future of North America ruled by Christian fundamentalists. And we'll talk about why in a minute. One other thing is there's a problem with fertility worldwide. And so in this society, women, uh, like some women who are still capable of having children, are given to ha- high-ranking men in the government to be really birth vessels, and they're the handmaids. That's their role in society. These men still have wives outside of their handmaids, and and for all intents and purposes, the handmaid is just for birth. Like, they don't have... They're not supposed to have extended contact. They only meet during the ceremony, right, where they... They a really fucked up ceremony. Yeah, where it's really weird. So that's part of the the world that our character, our main character of Fred, is her name, or mm-hmm. at least her name here, her alias, uh, lives in. So first thing we talk about is the world that Atwood creates. What is Gilead, and how did it become that way? All right. So here's what's going on in the book. There are many different developments that, that lead to this, and you only discover this as the book goes on um, in sort of flashback episodes. Religious fundamentalists have bombed the U.S. Congress and killed most of the government, but they blame it on Islamic fundamentalists, and they use that as an excuse to suspend the Constitution. And the, in this new government, which doesn't uh, no longer has a Constitution, the government quickly starts to take away women's rights, such as... Women are not allowed to work. They don't have control of their own money or their own property and many, many other things. And and also it's in the book focuses on women, but they're also treatment of homosexuals, mm-hmm. treatment of doctors who perform abortions. Or Catholics or yeah. Jews or, or anyone divorcees or divorcees, anyone who's not really, I mean, they don't come out and say it, but really it's anyone who's not a Protestant. So they've created this society that has many stratifications of theirs. The commanders who are sort of the heads of the revolution, or the heads of the government now that the revolution's over, their wives, who are largely powerless because women have no power, but they they have a strange power over the other women in society. Because they're head of the household. Yes, it's everything. It's like a super puritanical household. Like, the women can only function there. They're not allowed to read. They're not allowed to go out without escorts, uh, but the head of the household is in charge of, well, the handmaids. As like well as- all the servants, because they have a lot of servants, and the handmaids are really just kind of one of the other servants, who just have a very specific role. And there's another group, the Marthas? I don't quite, what, how would you describe their role? Uh, the Marthas are usually older women who are not in a position of position of power. They're almost the, the ones that enforce the religious rules. They're almost, I mean, not the religious police per se, but they have a lot of power over all the younger women who have to be handmaids. And everybody's afraid of them. They're like the, the, the bad guy. They're like the bad cop to the to the, the, the wives, often good cop, or at least sometimes them. So another thing going on in the book is that throughout the world, there's been a major decline in fertility. Just lots and lots of women cannot get pregnant at all. And uh, 
there are many reasons for this. The book talks about pollution and the environment and all these chemicals put out by, but also it's talking about uh, STDs also cause this. And so the world uh, is facing a crisis where there just are not enough children being born. There are some, but just not enough. This was a common kind of concern at the time. I think there's another book where people can't get pregnant with children of men. I have not read that. I've not read it either, but I saw the the movie, which was kind of... But I know that book was from like 1992 or something like that. So not long after this, not yeah, right around the same time. That was a concern, which I guess we can talk about that a little later. That just struck me as an interesting plot point to set a book around. People can't have babies anymore. So before Gilead, and that's the name of the new country, which which it actually it takes place in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Although they don't say it specifically, but it's definitely outside of Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So before Gilead, the main character was uh, just kind of a normal woman. Uh, she was married. She had a she. She had a kid. The problem was that her husband had been divorced and married her as his second wife. Um, And when Gilead became a thing, when they took over the government and suspended the Constitution, they made that a crime, like a religious crime. And so Fred and her husband and her daughter, they try to escape to Canada, but they're caught trying to cross the border. Definitely some historical references there, but we'll get to that in a minute. And so women like of Fred were given the choice of becoming handmaids because she could still have children or going to clean up toxic waste in the colonies, which is really the Midwest because that's apparently a barren wasteland. That's the double whammy. You have to live in the Midwest <laughs> and you have to clean up toxic waste. Not that we have anything against our Midwestern listeners. No, not at all. Podcast. It's just totally. brutal winters. So they, I think, I mean, it's sort of systematic how the, the rights are taken away. I think mm-hmm. the, the end of their marriage, I think that's one of the later steps, right? Because first women aren't allowed to have property. And then there's a scene where women aren't allowed to work anymore. And mm-hmm. all the women in her office or she worked, they're sent she home. She shows up to work and the boss comes in and tells every all the women, I'm sorry, you have to go home. You can't work here anymore. They gave me 10 minutes. Yeah. I'm sorry, you have to leave. Right. So they um, put up with these things and eventually they try to flee. And it's never made clear what happens to the husband, though it's pretty clear he gets executed. Probably died. Yeah. yeah. And the daughter, well, that's part of the plot is a Fred trying to find out what happens to the daughter and she finds out a little bit along the way. She's living in with some other family who's taken away from a Fred and given to some other family to raise and no contact. It's like her real mother doesn't exist. Yeah, pretty, pretty bleak. So this book, and we've already kind of hinted at some of it, there's a lot of historical and also literary allusions in it. The way, the plot itself, the where women are subjugated uh, under the guise of this uh, religious revolution. Well, that is something that happened very shortly before the book was made, and that that Atwood is clearly channeling the Iranian Revolution, mm-hmm. where 1979. Where yeah, so up until 1979, women in Iran lived a pretty modern, cosmopolitan life. They dressed however they wanted to, and they did what they you know, were free to do. Had more or less life. equal rights as their husbands, or didn't have to be married. Yeah, they like probably equatable existences to women living in any other American city. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even though they yeah, were nominally the Muslim, but they were not held to some sort of extreme standard. And then all, overnight, women are uh, no longer allowed to be out in public without wearing... Uh, uh, wearing wearing a headscarf, without being in the presence of a husband, an older brother, a uh, husband or, or a male family member. Right. Um, which can't totally, drive. Yeah, can't drive. Uh, I mean, you read Persepolis, you see this in there. And a more digestible and slightly less depressing format than the Handmaid's Tale presents these things. Um, so yeah. that's one huge 
That's probably the biggest influence. Yeah. Uh, but Margaret Atwood was also talking about just some of the things that were going on in the 1980s. Because in the in the early 1980s, this was when Reagan uh, Reagan had become president, largely because of the consolidation of the Christian of the Christian right behind the Republican Party and behind Reagan as president as a as a you know is is kind of an evangelical himself. Um, this was not this was only a couple of years after the defeat of the Equal Rights Amendment, which for I can imagine for 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 feminists felt felt pretty bad and you know there were people on tv like televangelists and others some of the more famous evangelicals saying (laughs) so holy the holy rollers (laughs) talking about they want to roll back the the 70s they wanted the 60s and the 70s they wanted to roll back the changes that had that had happened um through the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s and and that's uh, a lot of what Margaret Atwood was responding to, I'm sure, as she was writing the book. I would think the largest of those rollbacks or attempted rollbacks that relates to this plot is Roe versus Wade and just the widespread access to birth control. Like those are illegal things in the Handmaid's Tale world in Gilead. There, there are abortion doctors being publicly executed and gibbeted yeah. for their role there. Uh, so that's a big influence on the book. Ironically, of course, Reagan is our first divorced president. Yeah, that's very true. So that's very kind true. of funny that he's a, perhaps an influence about unwittingly. There are also influences, just the widespread infertility is attributed to pollution and disease and, and, and perhaps a, a misunderstanding on Atwood's part of what HIV AIDS does, mm-hmm. since that was such a new... In, in 1985, it was a very new thing. People didn't understand it yet. Yeah, it was a poorly understood disease, but knew, known to have some sort of sexual element, mm-hmm. since that was perceived to be the exclusive or, or perhaps primary way it was transmitted. And that's one of the things they blame in the book, I think, pretty explicitly for infertility. So that's another thing of her time that influences the book to a lesser degree than, than the just general shitty treatment of women in, the, or in other parts of the world. Yeah. Another thing during the time which I did not know about that I learned about on the interwebs is apparently 1980s super hip Romanian dictator Ceausescu was really obsessed with increasing the birth rate in Romania. And this might have trickled into uh, Atwood's conscious subconscious here as well there are also farther reaching things nader you referenced one but probably before we get to all the way to getting caught at the border the way the sons of jacob the the terrorist group that takes over the way that they take over they destroy they attack congress they kill most of the congress they kill the president and they suspend the constitution well that happened before just not with the united states right that, that happened, happened in nazi germany in 1933 yeah that's how hitler was able to get full power he was a contrary to popular belief hitler was never elected to a position well, he was. No, he was elected chancellor. He's appointed chancellor. No, well, he he was elected, which is basically prime minister. Like, the Nazi party got a majority. Yeah, he personally was not elected. He, no, whenever, the Nazi party got a majority, and they put him yes, as, as chancellor. But every time Hitler stood for election, per, on a personal level, he did not win. So Hitler himself, there was no, like, Hitler-Rommel ticket that people <laughs> voted or Hitler, Hitler-Himmler, make Germany great again. Right. Oh, I can't believe you just said that. Anyway, uh, there. But he, so in 1933, what happens? Hitler is given this position, uh, hopefully to shut him up. And somebody burns the Reichstag. Uh, which which, is, which the, is their capital building. So the Reichstag was set on fire and the Nazis immediately blame it on the communists. They blame it on the communists. We need extraordinary powers to deal with this emergency. And they were given emergency powers and suspended the constitution. And Hitler just kind of never gave that back. It was only, as it, uh, the book says, it was only supposed to be temporary. Well, that's the same thing for Nazi Germany. Exactly. So that's probably, that's another historical nugget in the book. Uh, and then of course, the Underground Railroad. Yeah. A lot of references to the Underground Railroad, you know, with, of, of Fred, whatever her real name is, trying to escape out of the country. It's interesting, all these influences, which are kind of vaguely non-Christian things. Well, the Underground Railroad was embedded by largely Quakers and other Christians. Mm-hmm. But, like, the, the Nazis were not particularly Christian. 
uh, Ceausescu and the Iranian Revolution, certainly not. No. Uh, but the purport, the guilt, the runner, but the rulers of Gilead are Christian, the fundamentalists. So, I mean, they're named after a biblical place. It's in the it's in the Old Testament, Gilead. Um, the sons of Jacob, Jacob, son, Jacob's sons are the founders of the twelve tribes of Israel, and they are super. Hardcore fundamentalist Christians. Uh, and the, just the fact that it takes place in Cambridge, Massachusetts is kind of supposed to be a recreation of Puritan New England and the Puritan values of the time, right. of the 16th century. And the you know part of the problem with the way Puritan shit is taught to kids today, or taught to kids especially, young children, where they make a, a pilgrim hat or a Native American hat dress on Thanksgiving. And that's it. Nope. That's all you learn. Maybe you learn a squanto. But they are taught that the pilgrims fled for from religious persecution to have a land of religious freedom, which is just utter horseshit. They wanted a place of total religious control where they could have whatever religion they want, their religion as they wanted, and nothing else would be tolerated. And that's exactly what happens in Gilead. They blame all these all these problems on uh, unchristian lifestyle, right? On people having promiscuous sex implicitly, and people having unprotected sex, or people having sex that wasn't meant to have children, people having multiple partners and spouses and whatever, people using drugs, people... Uh, I mean, you don't really use nuclear waste, but just people also being shitty about the earth. And they blame all they blame all the problems in society are, though, are caused by these things. So they need to put some serious brakes on everything so they could fix society. That's what they want to do. And it's super straight out of the Puritan playbook. Definitely. Hey, what's the other beer you have here? Oh, well, speaking of, uh, of the religious... There we go. I have uh, from uh, Evil Twin Brewing, which is in Westbrook Brewing Company, South Carolina. But I think Evil Twin is a, a gypsy brewing operation. They don't, they don't have an actual location. They brew on contract. But this is even more Jesus, which just seemed to fit. This is a very different beverage. This is like mm -hmm. motor oil. This is very dark. This is 12% alcohol, imperial stout. Smells like a hint of soy sauce. Seriously, soy in there. Chocolate, coffee. It smells delicious. It's good. Coats your mouth. That is viscous. Yeah. It's got like a roasty bitterness to it. And again, if you're, you know, this is an easy, these are easily acquired beverages. Feel free to drink along at home with us. Right? Though not if you're listening to this while driving. Yes, Don't. definitely not. Not, not if you're driving. listening to this in the car. Probably not a good idea. But take notes. Go to your local store. Pick one up. Tweet us at DrunkGuysBC, as in book club, what you think of our choices so we can tell you how wrong you are. I think this is an excellent beer. It's, it's delicious. That is that is a hangover beverage though. That is you can't have too much of that. No, nope. kind of makes that Jesus character seem a little more palatable. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but we won't get into that. No. no so like, are there other uh, other historical influences? Um, I'm sure there are lots more that I just haven't bothered to write down yet. Yeah, I, I think Atwood. There are lots of literary allusions too. Mm -hmm. I think the title itself is clearly a Chaucer reference. Right? Uh, in yeah. the Canterbury Tales, it's always like the Parsons Tale and the Miller's Tale, <laughs> the Butcher's Tale, the Baker's Tale, the Candlestick Maker's Tale. Yeah, yeah. it's everybody's tale. And um, this is the Handmaid's Tale. It actually should be the Commander's Tale because that's what he was hitting. <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> All right. So here's a question: What genre is this book? Like, what kind of book is it? Well, I think it won like the Hugo or the Nebula or maybe both, which makes you think right away of science fiction, sci-fi, or fantasy. It won the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1987 and the Governor General's Award for English Language. What the hell is this? No, didn't win the Hugo or the Nebula? Was it at least shortlisted for them? No. I think so, it, I know. I'm pretty sure it was also shortlisted for Booker. I'd be shocked if it wasn't. Wikipedia, engage. <laughs> it was nominated for the Nebula. There you go. You know, whenever you purchase a book and it's got one of those stickers on it that tells you that it won an award, that is not an accolade for the book so much as it's a selling tool. Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, I like those books that win that award. 
So I'm going to read this one too. So you'll see that like, oh, this is a, this won the Pulitzer Award. This won the Man Booker. Mm-hmm. Well, this book was nominated for the Nebula Award, and it won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, uh, and also won something called the Prometheus. Oh, it was nominated, excuse me, for the Prometheus Award. So these are all science fiction titles, or maybe sci-fi fantasy kind of get lumped together. Mm-hmm. It was perceived in the sci-fi world as one of their own, right? They don't accidentally give awards to books that are radically not science fiction. So I think to say it fits into the science fiction uh, umbrella is fair. Uh, I would say it's fair, but apparently Margaret Atwood says it's not science fiction. She would list it as speculative fiction instead. Oh, what, what, and, is, yeah, what does that mean? Uh, I think what she's saying is it's not really about science. I mean, she talks about science a little bit, talking about the problems with fertility, but it's really such a tiny part of the plot that... I, I actually kind of agree that it's fair to not really call it science fiction. No. It's not like... Right, it's not like old man's war. Yeah, it's fair. Because saying that this book is about science because it mentions fertility rates is like saying girl on a train is about mass transit because <laughs> she rides a train. Right. It's a train book. It's a, it's, a, it's, a great... it's a travel book. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's fair. I understand that. But, all right, well, I, I will just slightly modify what I said, and I'll say sci-fi fantasy are usually lumped together. Now, when you think f- fantasy, you think dragons, elves, wizards, and if you're into Game of Thrones, titties. So you think of those <laughs> and things. Dwarfs. Titties and dwarfs, and people talking about when winter is coming. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what you think about for fantasy. Is that fair? Probably not, right? Not every fantasy novel takes place in sort of medieval Europe with, you know, a knight and a king and a... A dame. This, I mean, where, where where would you put the other sort of dystopian novels? Where do those fall? You know, like uh, 1984 would probably, even though that's also usually called science fiction, it, it probably fits more in the speculative fiction genre like this. Because, yeah, the 1984, science is part of it just in the, in the surveillance, but that's about it. Just mm-hmm. having, now maybe in 1948, having lots of cameras was pretty advanced technology. Yeah. That doesn't seem particularly sciencey today. I mean, I guess whatever the fuck speculative fiction is, what is that? Is that, is that saying like to speculate? Like it could be this could happen sort of fiction. I, I don't know what she means by speculative. Like where does that term come from? I don't it's know. probably just a term for something that doesn't fit in another category. Since this book is often called the first feminist science fiction novel, she's calling it speculative fiction. Is a speculum is a gynecologist tool, and that's that, what she's going for. That must be where she got it. That's hundred percent it. Actually, I do know. I actually know a little bit more. Doesn't sound like a total asshole. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who she won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, Arthur C. Clarke likes to call his books speculative fiction, even though he usually gets kind of labeled as hard science fiction, which sounds like it's science fiction with penetration. <laughs> he had hard science fiction, which he called it speculative science fiction. Uh, and I think she was might have been influenced by that. So his books are super sciencey. I don't know where the hell he gets off thinking no. they're not. Like they're all spaceships right, that, and aliens. Yeah, exactly. That has to be science fiction. If spaceship and aliens aren't science fiction, then what is? Since it's a, it, it, maybe it's a speculative fiction book, maybe it's a science fiction book. We're the drunk guys. We're two dudes reading this book. I have no problem reading a book by a female author. I have no problem reading a book with a female protagonist or largely female cast of characters. But this book is often called a feminist book. And question for you then like how, how are we supposed to feel reading this book what are, are we supposed to feel something special as men or something different is there as a man should i feel guilty well you yeah this book? as a penis wielder should you feel something special because like, because i bet uh i can only speculate that a female reader is going to 
empathize with the characters differently than I would. Not necessarily come out and be like, I hate men, but mm -hmm. understand like, oh, this is a possible thing and I should be wary of it. Whereas me as a man reading it, I, I, that, that scenario doesn't occur to me. Uh, that I'm going to be like, oh, I better watch out. I got to be careful because that could happen theoretically. That scares me. I just think it's a good book. I just like reading the story. So I did feel a little bit guilty reading the book. Uh, I don't think, I think that's a little bit unavoidable. But I don't think that was Atwood's intent. I don't think she was trying to write it as a book to make men feel guilty. Um, she has said in interviews that it's not a book about female oppression so much as it's a book about everyone being oppressed because it's not just the women or just the handmaids that are oppressed. It's everybody, just like every other totalitarian society. That's, that she said that's really what it was talking about. I don't know if she was just trying to deflect criticism or of any kind. Uh, another funny thing about the book is that, you know, uh, the main character spends almost all of her time with other women. And it's the really the, the, in the Marthas especially are the ones that have the most sort of day-to-day -day job of keeping the handmaids in line and really uh, maintaining the very, uh, maintaining the society that is very oppressive to women. And another funny thing is the male, the few males that she has contact with end up, well, not being all good or anything, but they're actually not that bad either. So there's, her husband, which is obviously, you know, uh, nothing wrong with him. He's great. Uh, the commander, who's mostly really nice to her, even though he's still obviously part of the structure, the you know, the, of society that oppresses women. Um, he's definitely part of that, but he's mostly really nice to her and wants to get to know her as a person. That's why they go and play Scrabble. When she secretly sneaks, has to sneak into his room to see him, which is not allowed, he wants to play Scrabble and get to know her, which is, I mean, that's weird, but that's not oppressive. I don't know. I don't think Scrabble's impressive, except no. for oppressively boring, but you know, it, except for that. Uh, and then there's her. Nick, the, the driver, who actually is the one that rescues her at the end, as far as we know. You know, yeah, she's the does. one that rescued yeah, her. So does. really, I really don't think the point of the book was to make men feel guilty. I really don't. No, I, I, I agree. I just think, you know, that when you put the, the label feminist on something, that that has the connotation of activism and meaning like you have something to assert or to accomplish often not maybe i'm not i'm just projecting that onto Abbott. i don't think she necessarily felt that way because mm -hmm. she also probably doesn't necessarily believe this is a feminist science fiction book one of the problems that you see feminists are like oh your your stereotypical view of the feminist is like the man hater which is not fair you would expect this book to have awful male characters which it doesn't as nate just said mm -hmm. um it doesn't really demonize the male characters at all uh even though the actions of the unseen male characters are of course reprehensible um What's surprising is that the women are so complicit in this, right? The, so active. The, yeah, like why are they? Is it because they believe in what's happening? Because it's pretty clear by the end of the book that they don't. They don't support, like they, everyone just kind of ends up looking out for themselves. They don't really care so much about the larger societal goals, right? Like the, the wife is like, just, I want you to stop fucking my husband. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I will arrange for you to fuck this other guy. And he'll get you pregnant because my husband's balls are dried up. And then, well, I'll trade you information about your daughter. Like, it's all about personal gain, not about society. So I don't think that's true. Um, I think it's that the female characters in this oppressed world, many of them see an opportunity to hedge themselves ahead of somebody. And I think that's what ultimately happens with oppressed or downtrodden people is, like, they may say, well, I'm not going to be number one. I'm not going to make it into the number one class there, the top section of society. However, I could angle myself to be above some people mm -hmm. and have the illusion of power or very real power in the case of like the Marthas who get to smack around the handmaids and maybe some people like that power, like being feared, like being perhaps respected in a sense, getting this hierarchy of oppression. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what happens with the characters here. So that totally lends to the idea that this is about all people being oppressed. 
even even the, the the female characters, even though some of them are the bad guys, so to speak, in the yeah. character. It's, it's just a product of their oppression. I need a little, even more, even more Jesus. Even more Jesus. So, uh, what's that other beer you have right there? Oh, well, I wish I could say it for you. Uh, I'm going to enlist some help from Google Translate. So, this is also by Evil Twins uh, Brewing Company, which this one is brewed in Spain. But, I, again, because the brewer doesn't have one set location, they kind of brew their shit all over the place. This is... Uh, in the same series as Even More Jesus, as I understand, I think they're all similar recipes. There's a whole bunch of these. I see them at the store, and they're always different. There's like Even More Chili Jesus, or Even More Maple Jesus, or Even More Cocoa Jesus, and then there's the ones that are in uh, Spanish, which means I can't say them. Uh, so this one, <laughs> just drink them. On mas todo Jesus is abysmal, and I apologize to about a billion Spanish speakers across the world. Is uh, listed on the label as a malt beverage with cinnamon. Cocoa nibs, chili peppers, and coffee beans added. Wow. It is also 12% ABV, so I'm not sure. Oh, my goodness. That is dark. That is, you know. Oh, God. That looks like squid ink. <laughs> that is really dark. I, I wonder, I, I imagine, I speculate, that this is the same recipe, same base recipe as the other one, and they just throw that shit into it. Just throw the extra shit in. I don't smell. I don't smell chili. I smell like a little, a little heat, some sort of chili smell. There's, there's a little bit of heat, yeah. It's not overly strong, but there's a little bit of also heat. like a sort of, there's a chili taste, but it's more finest, like a herbal taste added to it. I wouldn't say that's an improvement. I don't get a hint of cinnamon. There's too many other flavors yeah. to also get cinnamon. And the coffee, I'm looking for that. I'm a huge fan of these kind of beers, of like giant beers, 10 plus percent alcohol. Like I'm no longer faced by 12 percent alcohol beer. <laughs> I, I want the heroin of beers. I want a beer that's like 18 percent alcohol. It's in a whale with uh, <laughs> like two pounds of saffron added to it. Like I want a weird fucking beer, but this might be either me or the beer, and and I can defend myself and the beer can. I'm gonna say that this is <laughs> there's just too much going on here that I'm not really I'm not able to appreciate all the different things that are happening in it. Yeah, I agree. So that might be a good a good analogy for our entire reading careers. That I just this book is too hard. What's going on? Uh. Let's go back to that one about the boy wizard. <laughs> All right, so what was the deal with the last part of the book? Yeah, that was weird. It's like a tenth of the book is this. It's funny. It's like the notes from the whatever, like 13th, 12th symposium or whatever. It's of the Gilead experts. Yeah, so after we find out that Alfred basically gets rescued, although you don't even really find that out. Just like, oh, it looks like they're, they might be coming to save me. It suddenly turns into this totally different thing that's taking place. It's like a... An academic conference, like... A, in 2195. Yeah. So, like, you know, 200 years later, more or less. Uh, 200 years later, and they're talking about what they just found, which happens to be The Handmaid's Tale. Right. And they find a whole bunch of cassette tapes in a army... Sur- in, a, in a footlocker buried in Bangor, Maine. Right. So that tells you a bunch of things um, that we speculate about. I'm going to keep using that word. That you speculate about at the end of... Of Fred's tail, right? She's not. She looks like she's getting picked up by the eyes, right? She's getting picked up by the sort of enforcer, secret. They're religious guys. police. They're and religious secret police. Nick says, "Oh no, no, they're the good guys." And if the book ended there, that might have been a really interesting, right? Like you don't know, can she trust him? Can she not? But we don't have to worry because now it's clear she at least gets away from Massachusetts. She lives long enough to write to not write down, but to narrate her tale. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, at Bangor, Maine, it's way the shit up there. Yeah, uh, it's where like every uh, Stephen King book takes place. And <laughs> <laughs> she gets way up there, damn near Canada. So you could speculate that she gets into Canada eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the professors 
who have goofy names, like Notley Wade or something like that is one professor, and the other one is like Pitexo, or I can't remember his name. But they are two male professors, which is also kind of ironic and interesting, right? You have the two male professors mm-hmm. who are the experts on the tale of the handmaid. They have found these tapes, or one has found these tapes, and he is he has transcribed them, and he has is going through trying to, to ascertain the identity of all these characters because of Fred, it turns out, used pseudonyms that her name wasn't really a fred it, or if it was there's only these two possible freds that they know about though one of the freds was executed as a in one of the purges yeah for having rather liberal views which kind of matches the fred that was into playing hot hot scrabble so <laughs> it could have been that fred but it's never clear it's ambiguous right so it gives us i, I don't want to say the handmaid's tale has a happy ending because it certainly doesn't but it has an ambiguously uptick of an ending where mm-hmm. she gets away it's not clear it's almost certain that she never sees her daughter again and the professors themselves say that she, you know she might have gone into canada and never spoke about her experience because she was afraid of um you know some sort of retribution against her family or her daughter at this point or she might have just become sort of like seclusive and despondent and died miserable and alone which is not much of a happy ending no so that was weird the way that and like it tells you the ending of the book sort of but in a totally different setting different narrator and wildly different tone than the rest of the book also that was kind of funny that she doesn't write the book or her narrative she speaks it into audio cassettes again speaking about the uh, time Margaret Atwood is writing this cassette tapes. Yeah, oof. so she. That's why it's not science fiction because they still use cassette tapes. <laughs> That's right. It's not into her, like her, her hand recorder device. But she but she recorded it over tapes labeled "Twisted Sister" at Carnegie Hall and, and things like that. And Elvis, an Elvis tape Elvis. was one of them. And then um, some other crap. Like now we can go like full balls deep English teacher on that and say that these names mean something, which they very well may. Maybe Margaret Atwood chose each of those cassette names very specifically, or maybe she just kind of chose them randomly. There there is no Twisted Sister at Carnegie Hall, to my knowledge. (laughs) You can say, oh, Twisted Sister. Oh, like the way that the women mistreat each other. But if that's the case, then she could have also gone for other names that might have uh, said how shitty this is. Like Black Sabbath would have probably been pretty good to describe the nightmare of the Christian fundamentalist society. Uh, I don't know which one is the case. But it also could be she has these professors presenting these tapes and, and who else is going to go all into naming, like trying to, to 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 parse out the meaning of every single word but a college professor who's an expert on a topic. That's that's their job to the point where they, they biopsy the thing where it's no longer fun anymore. <laughs> it could go either way. Maybe it's maybe it's both. Maybe it's it does have meaning. She's also poking fun at academia, which she does throughout that whole section. Yeah. See, they, there's punny things. Um, they're, they're, they, they're clearly misunderstanding certain things. She, but it's, it is a very strange choice for the ending of the book. Yeah. Because it's a serious downer of a book. And maybe that's why it's speculative fiction. <laughs> it's just weird. Well, maybe. Well, maybe but how do you think they're, you know, they're making the show. Now, when they make a TV show out of anything, it, it looks very different to make a TV show than it is to make a movie. The movie has a finite length. It's about an hour and 55 minutes. They're going to take the book. So you usually have to cut a bunch of crap out. Yeah. But to make a TV show, they have, this, they have the opposite problem. They have to stretch it for to 10 hours yeah. at least. And, and everybody really wants a couple seasons out of yeah, the show sure. because the second season, then you could charge a lot more money for it. So they have to add shit to it. But I can't imagine when they end the Handmaid's Tale show, which I've not seen any of, they're going to have the professors talking about the tape at the end of the show. So I've only seen the first few episodes of the Hulu show. Um, I liked them. They were great, but I haven't seen the rest. And I would only assume that the first season is simply the plot of what happens in the book. 
but they've already been, you know, they've already bought a second season. There's going to be another season of this, and I don't know what's going to happen in that. I think they'll, I mean, I think they'll beef it up. They'll add other characters who are largely inconsequential to the whole thing. It all depends on what their plan is, right? Do they plan on running the show forever? Is it like a, a sitcom where they want to make it run for years and years and years? Or is it like a show like, um, I don't know, The Wire or Breaking Bad, where they kind of have like an end goal or they have a timeline that they want to, they don't want to go too far because then you get start really kind of going back to the same well and get boring shit. I'm sure, like everything, if it keeps making money, they'll keep making more episodes. That's true. That's true. But that would uh, that would kind of cheapen it to a degree. Yeah, I'm worried about that. They could always add more flashbacks. They could always add flashbacks of other characters. There's a lot of ways to beef it up. Kind of reminds mm-hmm. me of Orange is the New Black, which is interesting because one of the actors or actresses from Orange is the New Black is in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, how they took this one 18-month sentence of uh, 13 months of the woman being in jail, and now suddenly like, it's fourth or fifth season <laughs> with no end in sight. Like They just stretched out and out and out almost on as long as fucking Oz at this point <laughs> and it's almost as dark at points it's pretty fucked up hmm. uh, which is not the case of the book they just makes better TV right. so I don't know if they'll change it for that I, I kind of don't want to knock the show but I'm not too interested in finding out right now or I'm not interested in finding out because I let, I'm a fan of the book if I watch the show it'd be as a, almost as a different experience not to compare the two though I'm sure it's inevitable speaking of today speaking of The Handmaid's Tale this 1985 book which is uh, older than 50% of your podcast quarters is <laughs> Uh, how is it relevant today? You know, I would say it's definitely relevant. Now, the show was definitely well into production before Donald Trump won, won, you know, became president. Well into production. So they can't have planned ahead and said, well, once Trump becomes president, this show is going to be a hit. However, I think that definitely makes a really big difference. I think that in terms of the show being successful and it feeling relevant, definitely think Donald Trump being uh, president uh, definitely relevant. I, I would say there are a lot of things that still definitely apply today. The fact that the religious right is still really important and still really is still really important in American politics, that right there definitely has not changed. They came out and voted for Trump in large numbers. Also, the book is about totalitarianism. The book is about a very repressive society. And even though it's a very, it's, you know, a conspiracy theory, it's way out there to say that, you know, the election of Trump is made that more likely or made that Trump becoming president is going to lead to some sort of crazy totalitarian society. That That isn't true. However, did it get a little bit more likely? Just a tiny, like, tick away from a more open democracy towards a little bit more closed authoritarianism? Maybe a little bit. And uh, I think, you know, it, it moved in that direction. And I think especially in just the months, I mean, here we are in July of 2017 and Trump's been president for six months. Clearly that crazy shit isn't going to happen, but definitely feels a little bit like it. I would also say one of the main events of the book where there's a major terrorist attack and it's blamed on Islamic terrorism. That just makes it, that's more relevant today than it was in 1985. It's extremely spooky kind of because chilling. Now she might have chosen Islamic terrorists in 1985 because of the conflict in Afghanistan or because of uh, the Iranian revolution or because there were Islamic terrorists in the world at that point. However, post 9-11, you can't look at that the same way. And there's no way that she knew this. There's no way she had some crystal ball and said, that's just, you know, really scared the shit out of people in 2017. Mm -hmm. But it does because you look at it, oh, that's kind of fucking, that's that's impressive that she came up with that because that now is totally 
totally plausible that if you said like when they're when you watch a news report about any terrorist attack in the world what's kind of a sick fun game to do is wait and see how long it turns out that it's an islamic terrorist attack because it's it's not the jews not the buddhists who are blowing themselves up right now though the buddhists lit themselves on fire pretty badass <laughs> yeah, well. so that's like that's the reality of our world today not all the muslims not all the jews or whatever of course but the terrorist attacks that we hear about in the news and the like what did we have this I'm year about london yeah and france last year yeah. right those are islamic terrorists now you could get into the argument of like no those are terrorists and they don't actually understand what islam is but like well, that's we're, a side issue we're not going to get into that argument on this podcast no we'll that's let, not we'll that's beyond harris, our pay grade we'll let sam harris deal with that one absolutely that is the world we live in today that makes this book strangely relevant for a totally different reason than it was intended for mm-hmm. right it was intended to be about oppression and women and then there's like this little almost footnote in the plot that brings it that anchors it to today and then therefore brings everything else closer i guess so in a post-trump or inter-trump world does does that change your reading of the book because you just reread it i read it pre-trump and pre-trump i i just reread it and i don't know i don't know how to answer that uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, I was reading it for the second time, so I already knew what happened. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't surprising anymore at that point. But it was still, I think, a very relevant book, as will the series be. The television series. Sure, I think that besides Trump's base, if anybody was kind of happy that Trump got elected, it might have been the producers of this show. Yep. Oh, shit. <clears> that just they, make our ratings go way they, up. They must have cashed in big time. I mean, I'm sure every person involved in the show was like, oh, fuck. Right? You but know, because they're Hollywood, they're actors, they must be very liberal. So they were, I'm sure. But mostly really upset. Maybe not entirely, though. Like, oh, well, there's the silver lining. <laughs> I think um, I think there are things that we've talked about before the podcast that the dysfunction in our government that makes it maybe there's a possibility of such an event as the as the Gilead uh, revolution. Is it possible? Certainly. I mean, is it plausible? Certainly not. Is it possible? Sure, in the sense that it is above zero. Right? The mm-hmm. likelihood is above zero. But is it worse now than before? I don't know if I'm comfortable saying it's worse now. Yeah, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure either. But you, you have to just look at what's happened in in uh, the UK every time there's a terrorist. Just in the last. Year. Every time there's a terrorist attack, one side, usually the side in power, says this needs expanded government power, expanded government <clears throat> ability to watch the people, to control the people, to, you know, just look after the era, their, uh, the London bombings in 2007. Suddenly there are cameras everywhere watching everybody all the time. And uh, just after, you know, after this year's uh, terrorist incidents in, in, in England, the Theresa May has been saying we need to break encryption on the internet so that we can watch anyone on the internet. We can read what they say. We can read what they're saying to each other. And sort of every time there's a terrorist attack, even if, you know, they don't suspend the constitution, it edges the world or edges society towards more totalitarianism. I can't argue with that. And I think really this is all coming out of uh, old Adolf's playbook, mm-hmm. the Reichstag move, yeah. which conspiracy theorists will claim that Hitler himself was responsible for that fire. And I can only imagine that Trump would do exactly the same thing. So I don't know. I don't agree with you there, um, but I can't imagine that any politician, left or right, wouldn't try to use any crisis to capitalize yeah. on their own political no, agenda. No, I agree. Which Anyone. is maybe that sort of bleak view of America is the thing that could draw both sides together. Yeah, right. <laughs> the shittiness of it. And we will talk about 1984 on this podcast, well, I'm sure. Well, you know, that's what, yeah, that's in my head the whole time we're talking about this. We talk about surveillance. Sure, Atwood is prescient, but she's writing almost a full 40 years after Orwell. He really sets the stage. Now there are pre-earlier Brave New World and mm-hmm. we and these other just 
dystopian novels from the 20s and 30s that influenced him for sure. But his 1984 is is the blueprint for the dystopian novel, yeah. which we should read. Speaking of dystopian novels, you know what I think we should do next time? Join us next time on Drunk Guys Book Club when we read Fahrenheit 451. All right, thank you for joining us on Drunk Guys Book Club. Let us know what you thought about our books or about our beer. You can find us on Twitter at DrunkGuysBC or send us an email at DrunkGuysBookClub at gmail.com. All right, bye, everybody. Peace. <laughs>